This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Here in my part of the world, it's back to school time. Lower schools, high schools, and university students, faculty and staff are shaking off their summer ease and getting back into academic curiosity and discovery. In that spirit, this week, Cultivating Place is joined by Dr. Lauren E. Oakes, a conservation scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society and an adjunct professor in Earth System Science at Stanford University. As an applied scientist and specialist in adaptations, Lauren is working to model how people can adapt at local levels to the global climate crisis. Her book, In Search of the Canary Tree, the story of a scientist, a cypress, and a changing world, is the book in common for Chico and our associated California State University Chico this coming academic year. Lauren joins us today from her home and office to share more about her journey and her work studying the last decades of die-off of large stands of ancient and venerable Alaskan yellow cedars. And more specifically, she's studying what their lives in response to a heating globe can teach all of us about reality, adaptation, and relationship. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited about, about the news in Chico. <laughs> yeah. I am excited as well. And the minute I saw that this was our book in common, I knew that I wanted to talk to you about this. Because while the book is not about gardening per se, and my my ears and eyes lit up when I saw the word garden a couple of times in the book, <laughs> the relationship of people to plants and place is very definitely the equivalent, the sister, the relative of what I consider to be the human impulse to garden. And you explore this so beautifully throughout the book with a lot of wide-ranging information and implications. But I want to get started before we go there. I want to get started with what what you do right now as an adjunct professor, as a conservation scientist, what does this mean? What do you do every day, Lauren? Yeah, so I currently work with the Wildlife Conservation Society and um, a conservation scientist and adaptation specialist. So we're building a adaptation program across the Americas, which helps people in various places adapt to climate change at the local scale. So that means I help on a variety of projects, whether um, managers or conservation practitioners are thinking about water issues or um, forest fires and the effect on ecosystems and people from those types of uh, events. And then I also am uh, still affiliated with Stanford and I occasionally teach a, a workshop or short courses. So I went back this um, this winter and taught uh, actually a storytelling course for people that were interested in writing books. And then I teach, a, I'm teaching a sophomore college course in Alaska, which was a um, three-week course I helped develop while I was doing my research up there. Uh, and then I'm in the process of developing a communications workshop that'll be co-sponsored by Stanford that I'll actually teach with a couple colleagues from there uh, and partners from France. Wow, there's so much so much to follow up on so, there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot there, but it's all climate focused. Yeah. And I'd say that the main theme is that it's uh, thinking about action and how we communicate climate change. So I'm doing less research right now and mm-hmm. trying to do more applied work. Okay. 
And there really is so much to follow up on there in terms of how you have evolved, adapted, and are moving forward after this long period of time researching the Alaskan yellow cedar and your research findings and results and the experience for you and what you took away from it and hope to bring to us in so many ways from storytelling to communicating to addressing climate change in whatever ways we can. But I want to step back a little bit first and I want you to share with listeners and and there's there's quite a bit of this information in the book as well, but I'd love you to share with listeners your earliest influences, your your people and your places and your plants that led you to be the kind of person for whom this kind of information and relationship would be important. Yeah. I think I tend to think that people doing environmental work had early experiences, you know, that affected them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them sometimes in research, we call it a peak experience, something kind of profound you watch change, or maybe it's something that occurred more gradually over time. But I think I definitely have that history as well. In the book, I talk about uh, the early influence of my father and and he gave me uh, a camera. It was actually his his father's camera. It was an old kind of relic of the 1950s and I was just 14. And, and when I went back and I go back and look at some of the contact sheets of the earliest things that I was photographing, it was all how we were cultivating the land, really. I was photographing, you know, the, the, the strange squares in our garden and the hedges that we trimmed and this um, really beautiful maple tree that had, you know, had lots of scars from, from cuts over the years. Um, uh, so I think that's kind of where it started for me. But I, as far back as I can remember, I think I've always been fascinated with how we're cultivating the landscape around us. And, you know, ultimately that evolved into a deeper understanding of knowing that any time we're affecting that this, our surrounding, it ultimately has a feedback on us in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that at, you know, different scales now. Yeah, yeah. When you started on your educational and sort of larger life journey, describe the process of understanding that you wanted to go into the work of ecological conservation and research and and do the hard work necessary to get a PhD. I think that that fascination, you know, persisted all through high school and then, you know, became a motivator when I was going to college. I think a lot of people say, oh, I want to study this or that when I go to college and they get there the first year and it changes. <laughs> but when I, <laughs> and that's fine, that's great. I think that year can be a, a really good year of exploration. But um, for me, when I was applying to colleges, I I wanted to study environmental issues. And, you know, I was also interested in the communication side. I kind of still carried that photography with me um, and the interest in telling stories. Um, So that's still what I'm doing years later now, (laughs) two decades later. Um, You know, that sounds like a clear path, but um, it really wasn't in the sense of there's lots of different directions you can go. And, you know, I had a couple members of my family who had medical backgrounds. So I thought a lot about public health. And in the end, you know, in college, I felt like I was drawn to those changing landscapes. And so I worked on a number of projects, you know, both both in the local community where I was. And, um, you know, I took a year off in college and really got interested in forest issues then. So it was an exploration. And honestly, I never thought that I would go on to get a PhD at all or <laughs> go back to graduate school. 
um, I was, you know, working more in policy after I finished school and advocacy and conservation. And I actually felt like at that point, I had a strong basis for understanding the kinds of environmental issues we're facing and why, you know, the policy challenges, but what was kind of a black box was the science, really. I was, you know, constantly taking results or information from researchers and sharing those in a policy setting. And I felt like I wanted to understand the, the black box. <laughs> so that was my motivation to go back. But it certainly wasn't clear when I went back what I would study exactly or that it would be this, you know, tree species that then took over my life. <laughs> <laughs> in the most beautiful of ways. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> before we get there, so you were born and raised where? In Connecticut, Stanford, Connecticut. And you did your undergraduate work? I went to Brown University and I studied environmental studies and I double majored with film and, well, with fine art and mainly film and photography. I took a lot of classes at RISD mm -hmm. and uh, I was still photographing then. I still am today, but I think the photographing kind of translated into desire to put words to it. <laughs> Which is a which is a theme that's recurring the the image versus the word the story versus the science as as we go along in the book, what what landed you at Stanford doing your uh, PhD work, Lauren? Hmm. You know I was pretty acutely aware in applying to graduate school and considering where I would go that I wanted an applied program and I wasn't really sure about the path on the other side. Um, I think a lot of people go out forward saying they, they want to do research or they want to teach. And I really didn't know. I just trusted that next step. And I found this program at Stanford. It's called the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. And uh, it's an interdisciplinary <laughs> program that trains people to bridge across disciplines. And it's really a problem-solving program in the sense that um, – Yes, we're contributing to academic fields and drawing from them in our work, but you enter with a problem you want to address and recognize that often the single disciplinary tools are not all that's needed to, to address it, to resolve it. So I felt like it had this, um, it, was, it provided a really great opportunity to, uh, to dive into ecology, to dive into social science, and really to be trained in them both to integrate them for problem solving. So I was lucky. <laughs> I was uh, there. It's a small cohort every year, and um, it was really a, a really wonderful group of colleagues, and just a tremendous opportunity uh, to you know go on to graduate school and to tackle a problem that I thought was really relevant. Yeah, and of course that problem and how you tackled it and how it evolved over time is a great portion of the book, which which gets us to the book. And I'm not. Normally, I would say to someone, how did the book come about? But the fact is that from everything I understand, having just finished it, and actually you understand this quite early in the book, the book is the, the horse after the cart, as it were. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the cart is the work you did and the process you went through to determine what that work would actually be, which gets us back to this desire for you to work in an applied program and to integrate different ways of thinking and viewing and responding to the world as well. So walk us through a little bit of that process. You end up 
at Stanford, and even as you said the the name of your department, and I heard the word resources in there, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's hard to say now. Um, and we'll we'll get to that as well. But so the program and environment relationship, right? Exactly, and um, which is this is this is a great theme throughout throughout the book, and that interplay between learning something from story and analogy and then learning something from numbers and hard data being analyzed. Like this is a constant back and forth in the way you've written the book, in the way you learned throughout your research, it seems to me. And uh, so share a little bit with listeners without giving it all away uh, yeah. what, what, what that process was for you as a, a relatively young woman entering into the scientific field um, and, you know, trying to earn earn your marks, as it were. Yeah. So I think from the start, I mean, I've like I said, I've always carried that interest in uncovering environmental problems, trying to address them, but telling them in compelling ways. And I definitely articulated that when I started at Stanford. And I appreciate that uh, I had this really wonderful advisor, Eric Lambin. He was my lead advisor, and he he valued that and saw that, encouraged it. But he also said, "Do the research, do the rigorous research, and then tell it the way you want to tell it." And I kind of had that in my mind from the beginning, but I didn't really know, and probably until a year or two in, when I was deep in the scientific process, you know, and seeing what would go forth, what would go forward into a publication, and also what I left out of that, that there that there would be a book, and that there was more to tell. Um, but I think I valued, you know, I remember going to a talk my first year, Paul Ehrlich, who wrote the, you know, population bomb, and it was for the college, students in the ecology program, PhD students, and he was encouraging people to, to share and talk in the public. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of times scientists do the work they do and leave it for the media to pick up or for somebody else to tell in a compelling way. But I guess I think, and I want to encourage other students, I think that's part of the process and responsibility. If you're working on a issue that needs solving today and needs you know, broader engagement, the more uh, you can be communicating in both contexts, I think is really valuable. Sure, that's uncomfortable. Like a lot of times, I think it's more comfortable to stay in your academic community or to speak in that community or to use that language. Um, so I was kind of always, I did some writing along the side. I wrote a um, blog for the New York Times while I was doing my research. And I think it was perceived generally positively, but always as something extra, not the standard. So I think maybe that's even true today, right? I'm still, I'm still a scientist, but I communicate in different ways. And, and that's perceived differently by, by scientists, I think. Yeah, because there's that danger no, risk, gamble, I don't know, worry, that when you begin taking subjective experience and narrative and and interpreting your numbers and your data and your results, you get into a more human, fallible, emotive kind of realm. Mm -hmm. And you describe this difficulty for you in, in determining whether or not you would move from just presenting this data, this research, these numbers, and then moving on to whatever the next research project would be. Or would you take what you found here and try and do something, I say bigger with it, but that right there indicates a, 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 right. a subjectivity that that's what I value. And so it's it's an yep. interpretation that, you know, and again, you you explore this very beautifully in the book that everybody will see it from a slightly different lens based on different circumstances. So 
Mm -hmm. I think we're getting deep into esoteric discussion on the philosophy of the book. And so describe for for listeners, like, what what was the research? Why did you choose the Alaskan yellow cedar? And what were you setting out to research and find? Yeah, so I was attracted to work in the north, uh, first and foremost, just because, you know, the time I was starting in 2009, you know, the northern latitudes were experiencing you know, strong climate impacts already. So I thought of that general landscape and, you know, just orientation on the globe as um, kind of a looking glass into the future. If, you know, back then, if we were to think the temperatures will continue to rise and we're going to continue to see the kinds of impacts we are now seeing today, to me, it was a chance to go to a place that was already pretty impacted and look at what was happening. What were the implications of that ecologically? And also, how, you know, were people coping with those changes? Were they coping? And when I say those changes, I really didn't know what the topic would be. I um, write briefly about it in the book, but I I spent a, a summer doing exploratory research where I was, you know, essentially traveled from Southeast Alaska, um, far north to the Arctic, talking with people in communities, interviewing, you know, resource managers, policymakers, scientists working on a range of issues, whether they were um, water issues, fisheries, fires, forests. And I was trying to get a sense of, you know, what are some of the most pressing climate change impacts occurring? What's on people's radar? What would be a value here to know more about in a research process? I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dr. Lauren Oakes is an applied and research scientist whose studies of the Alaskan yellow cedar is documented in her book, In Search of the Canary Tree. This is the book in common for the city and university of Chico, California, this coming academic year. Stay with us for more conversation with Lauren right after the break. Hey, can you believe it is already back to school time? Such an interesting cultural seasonal rite of passage taking place as students and staff and faculty return to their studies. And as in the garden, so too in life. Garden friend Annie Redbird reminds us, the garden, like school, is changing up her look and feel right now also. We've had a pretty mild summer here so far, just one real week of over 103 or so, and several weeks of just mid-90s, which is downright cool for us. All the same, the growing season is now getting on in age, and the bloomers and producers look a bit tired, ready for their late summer harvests or cutbacks, and for setting their seeds. As we reflected in last week's episode with Rowan White, we're tending toward the autumnal equinox later this month, and we're fully entering the showiest of the seed seasons of the year. Are you following along with the My Plant of the Month CP Challenge practice on Instagram or by email with me? The Cultivating Place community started this last month as a communal learning practice, an intention to learn at least one new plant each month and share with one another what we learned. Our new plant friend's name, where they live, what conditions they like, who their friends are, that kind of thing. The kind of personal and contextual information you'd want to know about any new friend, and which will help you remember them and their name. 
You all shared some great plants with me. You can see or read about other people's shares using the hashtag MyPlantOfTheMonthCP on Instagram, or you can see them in the most recent A View From Here newsletter, which went out just this past week. You can, of course, learn and share as many new plants a month as you're called to. And while I'm trying to focus on learning new-to-me native plants of my Northern California area, Your new plants can be from anywhere, native to you or not. As one Instagram friend pointed out, we sometimes learn our native plants by learning which plants around us are not native first. For me, this month, in the spirit of this seed season, my plant of the month CP is one I learned because I noticed its seed head on a recent hike. It's got one of the prettiest little seed heads I have ever seen. You can check it out on the Cultivating Place Instagram or, as I said, in this most recent A View From Here newsletter at cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, sign up to receive the newsletter by email if you'd like. As we learn about the impacts of the climate crisis on the Alaskan yellow cedar, I feel a real urge to keep learning, appreciating, and lifting up all plants as just one tiny way of helping to change our human view of plants from being resources to instead being important relationships. This is a semantics and worldview lesson I've taken even more to heart after reading Lauren Oaks' In Search of the Canary Tree. And now, back to our conversation with her. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back with Lauren Oakes, author of In Search of the Canary Tree, the story of a scientist, a cypress, and a changing world. When we left off in the conversation, Lauren was describing how she came to be studying the die-off of the Alaskan yellow cedars. And as we come back, she shares how her real focus was not only on how this species has been impacted by the climate crisis, but more importantly on how it and the floral, faunal, and human communities in which it lives are responding, and what we can all learn from that going forward. In that process, I came across and I met a man named Dr. Paul Hennon, who was a forest pathologist um, with the United States Forest Service. And he had spent his career studying this species, yellow cedar, which is this magnificent old growing um, cypress species. And it is experiencing widespread mortality or on the, on the landscape, you can see these just incredible swaths of dead trees. And he actually started it as a, as a PhD project, thinking that it would you know take a few years to solve. And that ended up taking his career. But when we met in 2010, he was just about to publish a synthesis on all these years of work that was that really showed climate change played a key role in the tree's death. And for me, that was this launching point because, you know, a lot of times we're trying to identify what's the climate link, what's the probability of this event occurring, how's it causing this or that as a result of climate change. And I really wasn't interested in doing any of that. I was interested in this question of what happens next if we accept if we accept climate change as having some sort of impact, then how are we going to respond to it and how is the environment responding to it? And so when I met him and I heard his story and what he was just about to publish, to me, all those pieces uh, were in line 
to take a step forward and look at, you know, the consequences and also potentially what could be a more of a hopeful message or positive of um, we're obviously seeing a negative, negative impacts in terms of loss of this species, but what ways are people changing or what ways is the environment changing was a, was a big um, driving interest to me. Yeah. And you, you state this pretty much right, right from the beginning and you then develop your protocol for studying these trees and you describe this. First, give us a little context on um, the time frame we're at here. You are you are what age and it is what year when you start the research having determined with Paul, the, the first Paul, uh, what you will study. And then um, because I think it's about a six-year period of time that you're – Yeah. Yeah. So I started uh, the PhD program at Stanford in 2009 and I went back – I went to do this exploratory research in Alaska in 2010 and that's when I met Paul Hennon. I was 29 at the time. Uh, and my first field season was, you know, the following summer on the outer coasts of southeast Alaska in these temperate rainforests and some pretty tough conditions uh, around the time that I turned 30. And yes, it did take um, six years in the end. <laughs> and you're, you, you sort of towards the end of the book, you're defending your PhD, and that would be in 2017. That uh, I defended in 2015. 2015. Yeah. The and I, I say that because I want to make it clear that we are now speaking in 2019. You know, there have been changes in adaptations even since then. You reference, oh yeah. yeah, and you reference at one point uh, that you were eight years old when one of the first scientists really made a kind of declaration that climate change was absolutely happening, temperatures were rising, and we would all feel impacts. And that was sort of the first kind of canary that you reference. And um, of course, they are m more than that. But you see this tree, this beautiful Alaskan yellow cedar as a one form of a canary trying to tell us something about the condition of our coal mine, as it were. So you know the climatic response of these trees that and and maybe just summarize that for people so that I don't have to and get it wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I I did understand it with um, you know, the difference of snow and snowpack and and insulation and then different temperatures at with different levels of insulation, basically. Yeah. So I mean, we could say theoretically that we all have a vulnerability, right? That there's some threshold any species is going to cross where they no longer can survive. And I think, you know, that became a philosophical question to me or, a, you know, per one of personal concern in my life as I understand and continue to understand more about climate change. But, you know, here I was studying a species that had already essentially crossed its threshold in many places. So these yellow cedar trees um, tend to be found in um, boggy soils. Their roots are, are generally pretty shallow and they um, tend to uptake their nutrients from kind of the upper layer of soil of the soil profile. And what we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest is an increase in precipitation as rainfall, um, but a, uh, and a decrease of snowfall, but a persistence of what are, you know, sudden springtime cold events. So in Southeast Alaska in March, you know, you'll kind of hit this period uh, we call it um, snaining sometimes, or it's like snowing and then it's raining, <laughs> and you're kind of um, hovering on that threshold of of 
of freezing. But then you'll get a cold front that comes in for a few days. Um, and it's like a, re- it's a real cold snap. And basically the trees have um, dehardened, you know, they've taken off their, their layer of protection or their winter jacket, if you will, because they're thinking it's springtime and we're, we're ready for spring. Um, but you get this cold event that damages their root structures. And that's what uh, hurts their ability to uptake nutrients and essentially they die. Um, but it's, it's through what, what we think are multiple exposures um, and, and damage during that, that kind of early springtime sudden freeze event period. And you, you cite this as this terrible irony of these incredibly hardy yeah. souls uh, and, and cold hardy souls freezing to death because they don't have enough snow blanketing their shallow root systems to protect them in these sort of quickly changing thermal events. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that deniers would latch on to, right, <laughs> from uh-huh. a long time ago of saying like, death in a warming world by freezing. Tell me about that. We now obviously know that warming is not just about warming. It's much more complicated dynamics. <laughs> much more complicated. But your real goal here, as you already stated, is to not dwell too too much on that, but to dwell on and delve into what happens next. So you set up a protocol with this great team of characters who who you uh, describe beautifully, and, and they're not just characters, they're real people who worked with you over this course of time and advised you and actually worked on the ground with you, measuring different things over time, a, a chrono sequence, I think is what it was called, chrono yeah, that's yeah. right. A, a chrono sequence over time in different kinds of groves where you are looking at different levels of, and this is a, a powerful image that keeps coming up in the book, the, the standing dead. Uh, and then what happens with them in the understory and their size and their greenness and their declining. Um, and then you conduct a great number of interviews with different communities of people in the same areas as these trees and how they are adapting or not to the changes in these trees in terms of their own lives. These people range from uh, forest managers, nature lovers, timber people, men and women, uh, indigenous communities, artists, uh, a wide range of people. You conduct a a very rigorous and scientific survey interview process also over a period of time. Walk listeners through – it's the whole book, so it's, a, it's kind of a huge question to ask. But as I describe what I then gleaned as the overview, give us – some of the the larger threads that you ran into. You you talk about reaching yeah. a saturation point and being able to predict different groups of people and their different responses. Walk walk listeners through that. Yeah. So I think first ecologically I was interested in after these trees die, what happens to the rest of the forest community? How does that forest develop? And obviously there was you know, an apparent loss on the landscape with these standing dead. And I knew that had ecological consequences, but I also wondered, you know, what regrows when these trees die. So we used a process called a chronosequence, which ecologists have used to study processes that occur over long periods of time. So an example would be, we understand how soils develop in the Hawaiian islands by this process or, um, 
how sand dunes have take shape over over long periods of time. And the idea is that you can't really set up a longitudinal study. And the the, the contrary would be to to set up a site, measure all the trees and the members of the plant community, and you know wait X number of years for climate change to take its toll, and then you know come back and see what happened. But instead, we set up a series of sites that were affected by this dieback at different periods of time. And you measure them all the same way, and then you're able to infer a process of what happens next. And so ecologically, um, you know, what I found was, yes, sure, a story of loss, but also one of regrowth as other species uh, take hold and respond to the changing conditions. But in the initial design and in, you know, the reality of, you know, my own sense of what would be of most value, you know, from the research I was doing, the ecology was important, but so was the story of what happens in these communities once we see and understand better how these forests are changing, both the loss and and the regrowth, um, how are people in the communities adapting. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with loggers and native weavers and people who were using the bark from the trees and scientists in the region and forest managers. And essentially, I was trying to understand, you know, how knowledgeable were they about the impacts of climate change on this species? Did they know that it was caused by climate change? The dying trees was caused by climate change? And um, if they did, how did how, what were their attitudes about it? And essentially, were they changing their behaviors or uses of the forest in any ways. And the idea behind the study was to think about behavioral change, right? So, you know, we can look across the country now and despite our president, see that <laughs> awareness, the polls actually show that public awareness of climate change is raising. And I think we're up to the high 70s now of people who actually recognize it as a problem. Um, so the awareness is there, but, but the next piece is um, what then inspires people to take action. So at a micro scale, I was taking that question in a community highly impacted, trying to figure out um, what was motivating people to adapt if they were. And to some extent, that's really where the canary comes from, um, because what I found was that the people most knowledgeable of climate change and its effects on these trees were also the ones to feel motivated to act if they had a strong connection to this to this species. So if they used it in various ways or valued it, valued it being economically or spiritually. So there was an aspect of relationship as well as knowledge that spurred them into action. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In her book, In Search of the Canary Tree, Dr. Lauren Oakes studies how one species of tree, the Alaskan yellow cedar, is reacting and responding to climate change. In its response, and the response of all levels of community around the tree, she finds lessons on adapting, coping, and thriving for us all. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Thinking out loud this week, I'm muddling over the word resilience. Like so many good words before it, it's become something of a container for so many different thoughts and hopes and concepts. It's become trendy and can veer damn close to greenwashing in many, especially commercial contexts, which are 
really hard to get away from in our lives. But when you think about it with some real focus and personal, personal experience, what does it actually mean to you? What does it look like in the world around you? How can we support it as a characteristic of ourselves, our families, our communities, our gardens? How can we support it with action instead of just using it as a word? Early in our conversation, Lauren describes her efforts in scientific research to employ, quote, an interdisciplinary, applied, and problem-solving, end quote, approach to her work. She does this in order to make the world better, better prepared and more resilient in the face of challenges. And when I heard this description of her approach, interdisciplinary, applied, problem solving, I thought, wait, that is gardening. Those are all the elements of gardening. It's exactly why my gardening practice and your gardening practice make us each healthier, more adaptable, and more creatively and resourcefully responsive to daily challenges. It's why our combined gardening practices can and do make our families and communities and thus our entire world more adaptable, more healthy, and more, yes, more resilient in the face of the many challenges we see around us and before us. So go to the garden and lead with your very best self back into the world from there. Our gardens are not resources. They are relationships that fill us up in important ways. Now, back to our conversation with Lauren Oakes on these very things. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back from a break to finish our conversation with Dr. Lauren E. Oakes. As we come back, Lauren shares how her scientific research on the climate crisis caused die-off of large swaths of Alaskan yellow cedar led her to learning a lot more about herself and expanding her own understanding of relationship and meaningful action in our rapidly changing world. Welcome back. There are so many lovely metaphors that you work with um, in the in the relating of this sort of KAB model that you describe in the book. The and, and one of them is that there's a, a point at which you uh, are so aware of the change that you become either paralyzed or incredibly pessimistic. And you figure, never mind, there's nothing I can do. And then there is also a point of um, relationship and connection that you you act from kind of a a platform of of love and you remain optimistic anyway. Um, And can you – can you simplify or or distill down for us what were the sort of tipping point between whether you chose to be pessimistic and take positive action or remain optimistic and also take positive action? Yeah, so I talk about it in the book, and it's actually probably the question that I'd say still lingers right. you know, after this project <laughs> and it's out in the world. What's the one that keeps eating at me? And <laughs> I definitely found, you know, scientifically that there's that there's a different result of how people 
will adapt when they're knowledgeable of the impacts, when they have a strong relationship to the place or system or species impacted, and, you know, what type of response they have. So what I saw was people in that pool, yes, struggling with the larger understanding of, wow, this is caused by climate change. There's a lot of grief that comes with that, a lot of sense, you know, a sense of helplessness. Um, but there are also ways to take action, whether, you know, specific to this place, they were changing their uses of the trees or um, innovating and using other species in its place or taking action at what I called um, academically in a publication, a global scale. So using the trees to educate others about climate change, um, feeling motivated to, you know, reduce their energy use or bike to work or do those types of actions that would help the, on the mitigation side. Um, so is a canary motivating them to think, revisit their relationship with the species itself that was impacted, but also the larger issue. But I said in the book, and it's still plaguing me now, <laughs> um, I think that, you know, in the end, I asked a set, a set of questions about, you know, outlook of it in, in, in every interview. I was essentially asking, you know, do you think there's a lot of things we can do? There's not a lot we can do. Um, and it, the question was in some ways about optimism and, you know, and, and, and pessimism. And, and, and I didn't find any results that were, you know, publishable from that. <laughs> like there wasn't a clear pattern of what leads someone to be in that knowledgeable pool to be optimistic or pessimistic. And, you know, I wrote about it and I felt this way that, you know, I could have said, okay, well, I need to go out and do a larger study here. I need the larger N <laughs> there's more people I should interview. And, um, but I took it at the time is that we each really have a choice in what we do with that information. Do I want to uh, say, you know, the future is doomed. Wow, look at this recent biodiversity report. Like, it's a total loss. Nothing we do matters. Or do I want to say, you know, we've got some real big challenges in front of us. What can I do uh, to address them? And to me, that um, that's, that's a choice of how I want to live more optimistically. And I think that I do think that what we do at the local scale matters, um, you know, mitigation and the larger policy dialogue on um, emissions. We certainly need regulation at that level. But I also think a lot uh, needs to come from our local communities in terms of how we're going to cope with the climate impacts that are already coming down the pipe. Um, so that's kind of the. I'm actually writing a new series now. I just started writing a blog series that hasn't launched yet, but should soon for Scientific American and um, looking at some examples of what people are doing at the local scale, but revisiting that question of optimism and pessimism. Um, and it was, and you know, I'm not actually sure it really matters. I think there's a lot of people who are taking action who are pessimistic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of ones yeah. Are optimistic. And, and there is this, this constant, um, and, and you relate this by analogy very beautifully. There's the, an interview you go to in which um, the the man has a, a ticking clock to yeah. keep him aware of the danger of um, raccoons or I think it's raccoons getting, no, it's porcupines getting into his vegetable mm -hmm. garden. Yeah. And this this idea of us all living with a ticking clock right now, and what does that ticking clock make us do? Does that make our hands heavier on this earth, or does it make us aware of our heavy hands and work to um, to lighten them? And the importance of uh, this concept of, of holding hands and community mm -hmm. the way the the trees do, the way and, – and we are learning ever more about that with research in terms of how – 
plant lives work in concert with one another and the soil and the air and they tell each other things and they share information and they then respond. And I think at the risk of playing those little hope games that one of your uh, one of your mentors, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I I heard this mentor of yours say this to you of not wanting to play the little hope games of, you know, well, I'm using a, a metal water bottle now. I'm not taking plastic water bottles. And is that really doing anything except for sort of a salve on my own mind to make me feel better. Um, This idea of trying to glean from these communities of people and these community of plants, communities of plants, what they are doing to adapt and change and the ways in which they are demonstrating resilience, that lesson was really powerful to me that that mm-hmm. mitigation by multiplication is not nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a twofold issue, right? We've got the mitigation side. We still need to, to do our best to stop the, to stop digging ourselves further into this hole. But we also need to invest a lot in adaptation. So, I mean, even if we stopped emissions today, we're going to continue to see these kinds of impacts. And I feel like right now that's a lot of where my energy is going and that's a lot of the kind of work I want to support because I just, I think we're going to continue to see challenges, whether it's, you know, drought or fires in California or erosion. Um, And I do really appreciate the analogy of the ticking clock because, well, lately I've been reading this Uninhabitable Planet by David Wells. (laughs) <laughs> and he writes, he wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times, it's time to panic. And um, I appreciate the message of panic, but I feel like I feel like it's more about working from an acute sense of, you know, urgency without in, in a calculated way. And, you know, I think panic can at times lead to chaos. Um, and, you know, there's a strong message there to try and wake people up. Same with, you know, Greta, who's this incredible um, young voice now in the public who's up for the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, <laughs> our world is on fire, our house is on fire. Um, but I still think that larger message can lead people feeling like this is hopeless. It's too late. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think... Um, well, I was interviewing somebody yesterday who's, you know, working on a water project in Montana, and I was asking him some of these questions, and he says, um, you know, adaptation is really the the path we have in front of us now, and um, I think we still need to do our best to um, to reduce the emissions and reduce the impacts coming, but we've got a lot to deal with in our local communities. And I actually find that pretty empowering because it means that there is something that every one of us can do. Yeah. And you 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 definitely reach this from a personal statement at the very end of the book. And I think this difference between operating from a calm sense of clear urgency versus a the, the chaos that can result from a transitioning community, whether that is of plants or of people, which we are seeing all around us right now, um, can make the difference in how we make decisions and how clear-headed and intelligent those decisions and, and caring those decisions will be. So for listeners, what what is the prognosis for the yellow cedar, Lauren? Hmm. 
Well, I think we're continuing to see um, impacts. You know, one of the things that I uh, did in my research was kind of document the northern edge of the mortality. And what I found um, was, you know, increasing stress in some trees. It, it may, in fact, move further north into the future. Um, but there's also some new research out there looking at how it's doing across the whole range. So I was working at the northern edges, you know, up in southeast Alaska and British Columbia, um, but there are other parts of its, you know, full range where it's it's still doing well and thriving. So, you know, I, I tend to have the outlook on yellow cedar that I have um, for people that, you know, I think there are going to be places that are um, hit hard and communities that are hit hard. But there will also be pockets where these trees and where people survive and do well and, you know, learn to um, live in the world that's changed around them. Um, and those are some of the you know parallels that I explore in the book. I certainly didn't write about as an academic publication, but I think the ability to think about, you know, the implications of my research and the lessons for my own life, you know, came through writing this book. And I think there's some, some strong ones there. When you've interacted with people since the publication of the book, and as you're working on this new blog series and reading new research or opinions that come out, have there been any really great surprises to you in in reception in change among people yeah I mean it's been amazing really I, I said to my husband when I finished writing I think it was like the last day and I was obsessing over the last two paragraphs you know <laughs> and when I finished I felt completion and I said this was the completion that I wanted years ago when I finished my PhD and so to me it felt like the act of writing enabled me to work through what was really a sticky sticky point for me um, and that is this bigger question of how do you have hope about the future and what's your outlook um, and I said at the time I was like that's enough <laughs> <laughs> little did I'm you okay. know <laughs> like whatever happens with this book that's okay <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, it's just been amazing to see. Uh, I still get emails every day from people from oh, just a wide range from students um, who, you know, appreciated the um, insight into the whole research process to, you know, I'd say much more common is people that are struggling with this doom and gloom perspective and don't know what they can do. And, um, you know, people who share stories of things they're starting to do in their local community, Um I've been amazed. Um, there's another town, Three Rivers in California, selected as their, I guess they do this one one book, one town type event every year. Um, so they are organizing a climate change weekend. And I think it's engaging people in a, in a new, new way. Um, I recently developed with the help of a lot of engaged reader, readers who had written me um, a reader's guide to be used for classrooms and um I've just been amazed by the response. And I think that that message of um, there is still a lot that we can do um, is seems to be empowering and something we need. And I guess because it came from such a, I guess the way that I shared so personally um, helped deliver that. So there's a, there was certainly a vulnerability in my writing. And, and you know, I was kind of scared of that, to be honest. I was like, how's this going to play out? Um, and even when I, you know, there's been a number of scientists who have written, you know, coming across the book or um, Science uh, the Journal, actually, 
did a review. I never published anything in science, but they, <laughs> but they reviewed the book. <laughs> um, and, you know, that obviously reached a broad scientific community. And so to hear from, um, you know, other practicing scientists who may not be communicating in that same way that, you know, a similar message hit was, was, was valuable too. Yeah. It was great. And I think... Maybe I'd also just, I'd, I'd just, I'd say that probably the most thoughtful response that I've had came from um, the family of Terry Ruffgar um, and Ernestine Henlon Abel, who uh, herself, who were, um, Terry and Ernestine were two native women that I interviewed and um, they let me into their lives in a really amazing way. And um, they were both, Terry in particular, um, people that really emphasize this relationship that uh, we need to think of, you know, our resourcing from the planet as uh, really a relationship that's that that we need to tend to. And that, that really circles back to the gardening, to be honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, um, you know, I, I think at the time, you know, you can, and, and even when I talk about it, it sounds like it can, um, sounds a bit out there, or maybe this is like leftist tree hugging, or <laughs> but it, it's really, you know, scientifically evident that that what we do to the planet is feeding back on our human health in various ways. Um, and so Terry argues that, um, th- that when we have a relationship, there are times when it's out of balance, you know, in any relationship and times when it's really in sync and, you know, in those times when it's out of balance, you need to work to bring it back together and, and we can do that. Um, so I really appreciate that message and, and her, um, she died actually soon, uh, after I last visited with her, she had cancer, um, and her husband, or her, her son, sorry, her son wrote me a long um, letter just really highlighting that part of, you know, it was kind of her life mission to share more about this relationship and relationship as a way for stewardship, really. And, you know, I was nervous about what would the family response be, and he was just grateful that, you know, it was out there in another way. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. There's so much that we could uh, continue to delve into, and I hope that I hope that every listener out there has an opportunity to read the book and take it in in their own way. Yeah, I really appreciate all your thoughtful questions, and I'm uh, excited to come visit in April. And um, thank you for this opportunity. Dr. Lauren E. Oakes is a conservation scientist at the Wildlife Conservation Society and an adjunct professor in Earth System Science at Stanford University. As an applied scientist with specialization in adaptation, Lauren is working to model how people can adapt at local levels to the global climate crisis. Her book, In Search of the Canary Tree, The Story of a Scientist, a Cypress, and a Changing World is the book in common for my town of Chico, California, and our associated California State University, Chico, this coming academic year. Join us again next week with a second back-to-school-themed episode when we're joined by Baylor Chapman, author of Decorating with Plants, What to Choose, Ways to Style, and How to Make Them Thrive. This is the perfect episode for those of us whose gardening practice includes a lot of houseplants. For instance, those of us moving into new dorms, new apartments, or workspaces, 
all of which will benefit from a healthy, happy, and beautiful dose of living green. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. And hey, over at cultivatingplace.com this week, you'll find more on Lauren Oakes and her work, including lots of useful links and fabulous photos. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, you can check that box while you're there, too. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.